Glad to see you guys. Um, can we just uh, can we just pray again? <laughs> I know we just prayed, but uh, can we just quickly pray again? I just uh, feel led to pray this morning about um, a topic of church, um, and just that God would stir in us. And um, yeah, so let's just do that really quick. Sorry, ushers. Uh, Father. God, we're your church, and uh, Lord, I pray that as, a, as we open your word this morning, as we look at what it means to be a church, Father, I pray for your help. Um, Father, I pray for your spirit to stir in each one of us, and I pray that, Lord, uh, you convict us where we need it, Father, and encourage us where we need it. Um, so, God, I pray for that right now, that uh, your spirit would be present, would be active, and uh, pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I'd like you guys to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 42. So if you have a Bible, grab one. If you're new here and you don't uh, have a Bible, there's some Bibles, I think, outside. One of the ushers can bring it around to you. Or you can just head on out and grab one from the tables. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we're going to be looking. Uh, and as I was saying, uh, we're going to be looking at what it means uh, this morning to be gathered in a community. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I used to do, I, I have two older brothers. So first of all, I survived my childhood somehow because um, my brothers used to beat me up all the time. Uh, but we, we had lots of great times together. Um, uh, my, my, bro my, my brother, who's just a little bit older than me, like I'm the youngest, so I have two older brothers, and, and uh, my middle brother and I, we were pretty close uh, growing up. He, he used to, we did all kinds of fun things together. One thing that my brother did, he thought was funny, was he would, uh, he would get me to make him milkshakes uh, because he would just compliment me. He'd be like, Chris, you make the best milkshakes. Like, you're, so, you're way better than me. And he would just, I'd be like, oh, great. Well, yes, I can go make you a milkshake. And I would go off and I, I don't know why I'm talking in a Southern accent, but um, I would just go make a milkshakes. I'd do all these fun things for him. But so, so he thought it was funny. I realized later, hey, wait a second. Um, but we did a lot of other things together that were very mutual. Uh, one thing that we love to do is watch movies. Um, we love to watch movies, and we loved a particular kind of movie, action movies. We love to watch action movies together. So, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about, like the really machismo, like cheesy one-liner movies, guys with big guns. You know, we weren't really allowed to watch a lot of these movies growing up. There's a lot of, you know, bad stuff in them, violence and swearing. So I'm not recommending this to you this morning, but we... Once in a while, back in the day, they used to put these movies on TV and they would edit them, right? They'd take all the like really bad stuff out so then we could watch them together. So we would watch these movies together. We'd be just like, oh man, look at that. Look at what he got. Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, Stallone, all that stuff. And there was always a common theme in all of these types of movies. Chuck Norris, it was the lone guy who could take on everybody himself, Right? It's like, hey, there's a battalion of soldiers who kidnapped my daughter, and they're guarding her. Hey, no worries. I got muscles and a machine gun. I'm going to go take them out. 50 guys, right? One guy, 50 guys. No big deal. Hey, there's a ruthless tyrant. He's oppressing the weak. He's stealing their dignity. 
I'm going to take my semi-truck and I'm going to drive it right into their headquarters and I'll take care of it, okay? That's the way these movies were always, they were always like this, right? Like once a, once a cobra bit Chuck Norris's leg and five days of excruciating pain later, the cobra died. <laughs> like, like that, that's what these movies were like. They were always the same. It was always like, the same message, whether it's Batman or Dirty Harry or James Bond, Indiana Jones, any movie Liam Neeson has ever done, take them down yourself. This is the message, right? Take them down yourself. Go it alone. It's all on you. That works in an action movie, right? That totally works in an action movie, but it... It becomes a problem when we apply that to church and to living as Christians, following Jesus. If we try to go it alone in life and in the church or as a Christian, that's not what God intended. And we will find ourselves getting into trouble, but we can try to become action hero Christians a lot of the time, can't we? But Thanks be to God that he's given us this wonderful gift that he calls the church. The church. Um, one of the temptations we have is we begin to think that people hold us back in our Christian life. Uh, that's a temptation that we can have, is that people actually hold us back. But we're going to discover today that that's not the case. Um, but there is this trend going on in the church today. It, it's a, a trend that you might call a churchless Christianity. Uh, Christians who don't belong to a church. They don't belong to any kind of group of people. And many Christians who are leaving the church. Now, leaving the church is not necessarily new. What's new about this trend is it's Christians who leave the church and would still identify as Christians. That's what's new. They still identify as Christian, even though they leave the church, and sometimes in many cases are quite proud of the fact. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, we're going to get this idealistic picture of what the church, what the very first church looked like. And it is idealistic, okay? It's a beautiful picture of what the church ought to be. It's kind of like if, if we put it up on the wall and it was like a target that we were aiming at to be the kind of church, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47 would be like right in the bullseye. This is the kind of church that every church should aspire to be like. So without further ado, let's look at the passage together. Um, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. This is God's word. And they, these Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord 
added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's beautiful, isn't it? This is a beautiful picture of the very first church and what they were like and what they practiced. Now, just leading up to this event, there's a lot that's going on, right? Jesus has uh, been with his disciples for 40 days of teaching after his resurrection. And then he leaves them going up to heaven. But before he left, he said, I'm going to send somebody else who's going to come down and is going to fill you guys, a helper. And so they waited. When Jesus went up, they waited and they prayed. And about 120 of them were gathered together day by day for roughly 10 days, praying together and waiting for this gift. And then finally, on the day of Pentecost, this great Jewish festival where all these Jewish people are gathering together in the city of Jerusalem. So there's thousands and thousands of new Jews or Jews from other places coming into the city Suddenly, this mighty rushing wind comes into this room of these 120, and God fills them with his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit literally comes into them, and this is a remarkable thing. They begin to just do, like, crazy stuff. They begin to, like, speak in languages that they've never learned before, and they start telling all these other Jews from other places about Jesus in their own languages, and the, the people are like, what? These are Galileans, like... How do, they know, how do they know our language? And then Peter, the apostle Peter, seizing the opportunity, he gets up and he starts to preach. He starts to declare to everybody that Jesus is their Messiah that they've been waiting for, for centuries. And he shows them through the scriptures that this is the case. And at the end of his preaching, 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus and are baptized. And the Holy Spirit enters into them. And then this is what they did. What we read in Acts chapter 2. This was their practice. is that they gathered together. These 3,000, how many are there now? 3,120 or so have committed their lives. And they begin to gather together and to form this community where they practice all this. And that's the first church. That's the first church. So we might ask the question, what is a church? If we look at this passage, does this help us understand what a church is? Well, the word church that we use is actually a Greek word. It's ecclesia. And it means an assembly. It means gathering. That's what the word church means. Um, literally, quite literally, that's what the word church means. Um, but there, the concept of church is actually much fuller than that, okay? So... There's, uh, there's a different word in Acts chapter 2 that's used. Ecclesia we don't find, but we find another word that's very helpful. It's a word translated fellowship. And it's a Greek word koinonia. And koinonia means common or community or communion. Or it literally means to share, participate with one another in something that is common. So we can conclude even just from this, that Acts chapter 2 is telling us that a church is a gathered community. It's a gathered community of people who have something in common, namely Jesus. They have Jesus in common. The church is a community gathered around Jesus. 
The church is the people who believe in Jesus, have been baptized into Jesus, and have Jesus living inside of them through his Holy Spirit. That's a church. That's a church. Now, uh, thankfully, Christine just like beautifully articulated the beauty of the global church. The beauty of the global church that when you go to another place and you meet other Christians of other backgrounds, that like there's this un unity. It's like incredible. Today, though, we're going to focus a little bit on the local church. And what does it mean to be a local church? And is that even a biblical thing? Because believe it or not, it's actually questioned today far more than anything, far more than the global church. Uh, so we're going to look at four points, four things in Acts chapter 2 about what it teaches us about the local church. Number one. The church is an organized local community. It's an organized local community. Number two, church is a supernatural community. Number three, church is all about Jesus and each other. And number four, church is for the world. Church is for the world. So let's look at the first point. I wanted to start with this point because this is the one that I think is sticky for most people. That the church is an organized local community. Um, some of you might be here already and you're thinking, yeah, hey, I'm with you. Like, yeah, the church is a community of people who believe in Jesus. But again, that doesn't mean I have to be part of a local church. Like I'm part of just the church, right? Like the big church, all Christians everywhere. Or you might even be thinking, yeah, hey, like I get that it's maybe even kind of local. Like, okay, you can kind of convince me on that. But... It's a community the way that a gym is a community, okay? So, like, I got my gym membership. I head to the gym. Um, I don't necessarily have to associate with people at the gym. Like, we have something in common. We're a community. We like to exercise together. Once in a while, we talk to each other. But, you know, like, I just go there. I get the benefits. And, you know, when I don't want to be there anymore, I just leave. It's no big deal. Like, is that, is that what it means to be a church? It's like a gym or like a club. Um, well, I think you're gonna, you probably have guessed it's, it's not quite what Acts chapter 2 is getting at here. Um, but you may identify with some of these ideas, and they're very popular today. Uh, some people in the church believe that the religiosity, the structure, by that they mean structure and formality and accountability, that these are problems with the church today. They're actually significant problems. And granted, they can be. They can be at times. But do we really need to belong to a local church? Do we really need to belong? Acts chapter 2 is often used, in fact, to argue that people should leave the church. It's used to justify leaving a local church. People say the early church was so countercultural, it was so radical, and it was so spirit-empowered that it just totally disrupted the culture of the day, and it did. It did. But some would go even further to say it was more of a movement than an organization, more of an organism than an organization. And for that, we have to say yellow flag. <laughs> That's a false dichotomy. Yeah, it is a movement, but it's also an organization. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. We see structure, leadership, there's accountability to one another. Firstly, we see the church had a plurality of leaders. Did you notice that? Verse 42. What did they give themselves to? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
There's apostles teaching, a band of them. The local church gathering needed to be led by someone. Even church movements where they believe there shouldn't be a leader, usually somebody has to stand up and lead. (laughs) I mean, it's just kind of a practical thing. Somebody has to stand up and lead. In this case, it was the apostles. And the apostles, as they taught about the New Testament church and what it should look like in the rest of the New Testament, they actually said there should be more leaders. They said pastors and elders and deacons. God will raise up these leaders and he will gift them and call them into ministry to be his officers, his overseers of the church. Secondly, we see the church gathered regularly. They had a time, a place where they met and they did it often. It says they did it daily. I mean, you thought you went to church a lot. <laughs> uh, they met like every day, it sounds like, in their homes and in the temple. They was not a casual thing for them. It was a committed thing that they gave themselves to. It wasn't something they were obligated to do. It was something they got to do. They loved doing it. Thirdly, we see the church met in large groups and in small groups. Verse 46, day by day, they attended the temple together. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their bread Those are two locations, right? The temple uh, was this massive structure that was like a number of football fields in size. I mean, it was easily could house 3,000 people. Easily. And they met there as a large gathering. But they also met in their homes in smaller gatherings. And I say this, I point this out because a lot of times I hear people say, well, large churches, ah, it's not very early church. Like, let's get back to the early church. Well, the first church was huge. (laughs) It was a big church, and they met together as a big gathering. I also hear people say sometimes that, well, they love the large church because they love the, you know, the experience of it, and it's great, but they're not connected. They don't connect in smaller groups. Well, again, the early church did both. They met in small groups. They met in large groups. So something we're trying to practice here at Central as best we can. They met in both kinds of groups because they needed meaningful relationships in small groups. And they also needed to gather together to remember that they're a community together, connected to one another. The point is that the church from the very beginning had all the formalities that many people struggle with today in regards to church. We need to sympathize with the abuses, right? We need to. We need to sympathize with the fact that people have been burned by church Bad leadership, poor structure, whatever the case. But we have to do that without throwing out the whole thing. In God's wisdom, he designed the church to be a localized community with governance, leadership, and order for the proper care of his people. That's God's wisdom. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, even gives us a command to gather together. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, he says, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word for meeting together there actually means to synagogue together. And the synagogues are pretty small. Meet together. Meet together. 
gather. It's like the difference between a cluster of grapes and a bag of marbles. A bag of marbles and a cluster of grapes look fairly similar, but when you put them both down on a table, you see the difference pretty quick. Marbles are privatized units that will escape and run off on their own, but grapes, even though they are individual units, they remain connected to each other. God calls us to be that kind of a community and to make it our habit to meet together rather than, now listen to this, our habit not to. Did you hear what Hebrews said? It's a habit to not. I mean, it's a habit either way, right? It's just either a good, healthy habit or it's a bad habit. But if you're not connected to a local community, it's just a bad habit. All right, enough about that one. Point number two. Church is a supernatural community. Let me just read the passage to you again. I just want you to mark what this church looked like and just, just, just how amazing it really was. It says that awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, all the surrounding people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. I mean, that's amazing. That's an amazing church. It's filled with extraordinary power, supernatural generosity, extraordinary love, extraordinary joy, extraordinary attractiveness to the outside world. That's what it's supposed to look like. And that's because there is a supernatural reality to the church. God is at the center of it, filling it by his spirit. And it's connected totally to Jesus. Um, one other thing to know about me is I'm, I'm not a very good artist. Um, if you were to like come and watch me draw, I mean, you'd be like, well, a five-year-old drew that. Like quite literally, I, I mean that. Like when I, I try, like I try my best, but my daughter, she's six. I think she's eclipsed me already in like her artistic ability. Um, and uh, so I'm not very good at drawing, but the, the great thing about that is I have a great appreciation for people who are good at drawing and painting and all that stuff. I'm just like, I'm amazed. Like you could, it could be the, not that great, but it's probably better than me. And so like, it, it looks really great to me. And I, I need pictures to help me. Pictures really help me just in life. And one of the great things about the Bible is it gives us these great pictures of what the church is. Okay? And they communicate the supernatural reality of the church. So I just want to go through a quick little list of some of the metaphors, some of the pictures that the Bible uses to describe the church. That's you guys. <laughs> okay? So just think about this. We're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18 and Ephesians 1.22. The church is described as a body with parts that are joined and knit together and they rely on Jesus as their head. We literally are that connected to Christ. Here's another image. We're the family of God. We're the family of God. Ephesians 2.19, it says that. Described, 
We're described as a family. We're brothers and sisters. And God is our father and we're his children. It's beautiful. We're a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.5. We're described as a kingdom of priests who bring God to the world. And we also intercede for the world on behalf of the world. We're a city on a hill, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. We're pictured as a church, as a city that casts light out into darkness, bringing glory to God through our good deeds and our good works and displaying Christ to a dark world. We're also described as Christ's bride. We're his bride. We're displayed as the bride of Christ who Christ loves and sacrifices himself for in order to make us pure and holy. Lastly, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.5 and Ephesians 1.23. We are pictured as a church, as a temple. God lives inside of human hearts and we are joined together and we grow up into this big building where God dwells. That's what a temple is. It's where God lives. I mean, these are incredible realities. This little church is all that? Like, yeah. That's the way God sees it. He sees it that amazing. It's that amazing that God would see all of that in us. And it tells us that there's this reality, this supernatural reality to the church. Even this simple gathering of people. So what makes a church a church is the fact that God is in it. God is behind it. He is inside of it. He is above it. He is underneath it. He is at the center of it. That's what makes a church a church. He empowers it with supernatural power. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a powerful thing. Number three, church is about Jesus and each other. Uh, do you ever ask yourself the question, why do I go to church? Like, why do I attend? Why do I gather? Why do I do it? I mean, just ask, asking that personally of yourself. Why do I go to church? Do I go for Jesus? Do I go for others? Do I go for myself? I mean, certainly we would say all of those things. All of those things matter. What takes center stage, though? What takes center stage? Um, there's a guy named Tom Rainer. He does a lot of uh, statistics and research about just church stuff, like out there in North America. And uh, he's written a lot of books. Um, in 2013, he, he wrote a post about why people leave the church. And he kind of tried to just bring everything down to like one main reason that he sees comes up over and over again. This guy knows what he's talking about, okay? So we're going to listen to Tom Rainer now. He's just going to tell us the main reason people leave. So here's what he says. All the research studies of which I'm aware, including my own, return one major theme to explain the exodus of church members. And here it is. A sense of some need not being filled. A sense of some need not being filled. In other words, these members have ideas of what a local congregation should provide for them. And they leave because those provisions have not been met. Certainly we recognize there are legitimate claims by church members of unfulfilled expectations. 
It can undoubtedly be the fault of the local congregation and its leaders. But many times, probably more than we would like to believe, a church member leaves a local body because he or she has a sense of entitlement. I would therefore suggest the main reason people leave church is because they have an entitlement mentality rather than a servant mentality. Ouch. Verse 42 of Acts 2, we see that the early church devoted themselves to four things, and it was all about Jesus, and it was all about one another. Here they are. They learned God's word together. Number two, they shared together. Number three, they celebrated together. And number four, they prayed together. These four practices, if you want to know what should form the core of any church in any culture for all time, it's no less than these four things. No less than these four practices. Number one, learning God's word. Learning God's word together. The phrase was apostles' teaching. They gave themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Essentially, this means everything the apostles taught about Jesus, which they then, over the course of time, wrote down. And you have that in your lap, right? It's called the New Testament. And they also interpreted and validated the Old Testament. And so it's God's word that these people gave themselves to. They gave themselves to knowing, learning, studying God's word. And not just that, but in such a way that it pointed toward Jesus. Now, we just heard a couple sermons about that in the last couple weeks. So we're going to skip on to the next one, okay? Number two, they devoted themselves to sharing. So we, we have to ask ourselves a question. What propelled these Christians to share and to be so generous with all their stuff? It's because they devoted themselves to fellowship. Sometimes we hear the word fellowship, we think like, oh, the fellowship hall, let's go meet over there and we'll play games. We'll do cool, cool stuff, like we'll, we'll eat burgers and stuff, which you know, is part of it. But it has so much more than that. It's so much more. Again, it's this word common. We have something in common and it's Jesus. We share Jesus with each other. We shared, so because we share Jesus with each other, these early Christians, they were like, well, my stuff's your stuff. Like, I got stuff. You don't got stuff. Here, take my stuff. Like, I mean, it, it's that simple for them. They're just like, we have Jesus in common. We're connected. So I'll share, you, I'll share with you my life. I'll share my food. I'll share my stuff, my possessions. Some of them even sold their possessions and laid it down for one another. And I know that makes all of us like tremble, like, oh no. It's one of these again, like I have to go sell everything I have. I don't even know how that works. How do I sell everything? I'll have nothing. And then I'll be like one of the people who needs things. Like, how does that work? Okay. Uh, yeah, this is expressive language to just talk about how generous they were with one another. They were generous. They just, they, they were willing to do it because they loved one another. By the way, this is not communism. Okay. What's happening here? Okay. Communism <laughs> is when the state forces you to share your stuff, okay? And then it leads to dictatorships like Kim Jong-un and that kind of thing. It's also not socialism. Socialism is when the state forces you to share a higher percentage if you have a lot more stuff. So there's a forcing going on in those ideas. 
The church is different. These people gave freely. They had stuff. They were private owners, but they gave freely because they were motivated by something much greater. And here it is. They saw that God had sent his son Jesus down from his throne in heaven, from all the riches of heaven, he came down and gave up all of that to suffer and die in a dark world that hated him just so he could save these people. And they were so struck by that that they're like, well, if he did that for me, like when I see my brother, my sister, who I love, like what, what would stop me if I have the world's goods? What would stop me from sharing with them? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. You know, in Canada, we might be tempted to think, well, you know, like it's not just Christians who share, like everybody shares. Well, yeah, because we live in Canada. We live in, um, you know, we live in North America. Guess what the foundations of North America were? Christian worldview. Why do you think everybody just sort of is like, yeah, of course you share? Because they don't even know it, but Christianity has infected them. If you go to other cultures where there's been no Christian influence, you're not going to see this kind of thing readily. Not this. Christianity has influenced our culture. In more ways than we sometimes give it credit. I just want to tell you a personal story of a time where, man, the church was just the church to me and my wife. My wife and I had our son Ben uh, a few years ago. And after, uh, after we had Ben, my, my wife had had an epidural. So she had one of these, you know, things, needles in her back, right? That was supposed to dull the pain and it didn't even work. <laughs> so that was great. And then, then it did this terrible thing. It poked this hole in her spinal, uh, you know, cord. And so there's spinal fluid like leaking out and so it would drain you know itself and and then she would get these horrible headaches like she could barely stand up so for the week after we just gave birth to our son she's just like the only thing she could do is lie on her back because she was just in horrible pain when she'd stand up and we were just overwhelmed we had a new baby and like she's just out of it and she's just emotional postpartum all these things are going on and we're just like ah. And then we get this knock on the door and friends from our church come over and they have all this food for us. And they're like, we're praying for you. And a couple of my buddies, they head out into the backyard and they're like raking leaves because our leaves were like everywhere. It was just like piles of leaves. And they just blessed us. I've gotten envelopes before when we were like in a really financially tight spot, just like random envelope of like hundreds of dollars from someone from our church. Amazing. And just so you guys know, we as your pastor, we see that in you. There's so many of you who give. And I just want to encourage you. We see so much, so many, so many good gifts that you guys give to one another. It's just, it's incredible. They also celebrated together. Uh, the phrase breaking bread uh, in this passage, they broke bread together. This, this is a reference to a couple of things. One is they ate together, but it also is referring to the special meal of the bread and the wine. That they had this special meal to remember 
Jesus and all he had done for them. And then they had turned that into a larger meal. So they had this big celebration around that. I mean, that would be cool to do again, hey? They actually had like way more food. They had that, but they had all this other stuff because they were celebrating. They were worshiping Jesus. They were a celebrating church. It says that they even, they were praising God with generous and glad hearts when they got their food. Jesus loved food. Like, just think about that for a sec, okay? He loved food. Like, he was always eating food. Like, he's on the beach eating food. He's always over at people's houses like, hey, you guys got any food? And they're feeding him food. He even rented a room just so he could have a dinner with his disciples, right? Like, that's all they were doing. Because there's something about food, right? Like, it just, it warms our hearts. It creates openness and joy and it's amazing like when you have, you know, if people are just there talking to each other and they don't know each other, it's kind of, you know, it can be a little awkward, but you put food there and it's just like, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. And it just, it just creates this wonderful atmosphere. By the way, if you invite Pastor Eldon for dinner, you can get him to do whatever you want. Okay. He, Pastor Eldon loves food. We like to tease him. But in all seriousness, when you take this meal of bread and wine, it reminds you that all that Jesus has done for you and it should produce thankfulness and joy in your heart so much that you would even compose songs of worship and praise him for it. Lastly, they prayed together. They prayed together for each other and with each other. And the older I get, I just realize more and more how much I need people to pray for me. I can't do it alone. I'm not an action hero. I need people. I need the church to pray for me. They're my family. Here's what uh, Paul said in Ephesians 6, 19. He said, praying at all times, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Pray for each other. Pray for one another. So these four things, learning the Bible together, sharing together, celebrating together, praying together, these are what we do when we gather in this building and in our homes. And it's all about Jesus and each other. The world ought to look at the church and see it truly is a city on a hill, a redeemed group of people who really love God and each other. So look, if you're, if you're disconnected from a local church, like maybe you're visiting today and maybe you've grown up in church and like, man, there's some struggles there. Like, I mean, we'd love to hear those. But also if you really just are disconnected, you're not really attached, you're just sort of loosely attending, can I challenge you? Maybe you're being more influenced by your culture than by Jesus. Church has been a wonderful blessing in my life since I was a kid, but I, I do remember as a kid saying to my dad one time, Dad, how long do I have to go to church? And he was like, well, you know, when you get older, you'll be able to make that choice. Great. I'm out of here. <laughs> that was my mentality when I was a kid. And yet here I am. So, somehow, <laughs> I, I don't know what happened. You know what happened? Jesus happened. <laughs> Jesus changed me. And then I realized it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about other people. What about you? What is it, what is it for you? Are you at the center? Is Jesus at the center? Look, if it, I, gotta, I just have to challenge. If you 
come to church and it's just about you, if you're at the center, you're going to pick all the wrong battles. <laughs> and, and it will not satisfy you. But if it's about Jesus, you'll find satisfaction, you'll find joy, and you'll fight all the right battles. Lastly, church is for the world. Church is for the world. Acts 2, 42 to 47, verse 47, the end of the passage says that they were praising God and they had favor with all the people. That means all the people who were looking on from the outside. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When the church gathers together, it takes its cues from Jesus. It becomes an attractive thing to the world. People are like, hey, what are you guys doing? Can I, can I go be part of that? Yet by and large, do we see this happening? So many times the church does not have that track record. And look, we can't solve all the problems, but we can devote ourselves to being a local church that is attractive to the outside world because we actually love each other well. We present a tangible picture to people of what God's kingdom should look like. And that's why we're doing this series on our values. We just want to come back and say, like, what does it mean to be a healthy church? What do we devote ourselves to? What are the basic things so that Jesus can fill us and bless us and that we can be a blessing to those who don't know him? That's our prayer. That's our hope. They will know we are Christians by our love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we're just gathered together again, Lord, to remember you, to think about you, to reflect, God, on how much we need you, and to offer you our thanks and to receive from you, God, with glad hearts. Lord, make our hearts happy. God, thank you for the church. Thank you that even in broken churches, God, you can fix what's broken. God, I pray that you would make us this kind of church, a church that loves you, that loves one another, even when it's hard, that are devoted to each other and to you. God, help us. We thank you, Lord, for this time together in your word. And we just pray you bless our meal now as we're about to have it. In Jesus' name, amen.